What creatures can live in both water and on land? Their body temperature changes according to the surroundings. In other words, they are ectothermic, and they can breathe through lungs and skin. The answer is amphibians, a class of animals that is an important evolutionary step between fish that live in water and mammals and reptiles that live on land. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Amphibians include frogs, toads, and salamanders, and they are an important part of nature in addition to being rather adorable. I'm thinking of toads. They eat insect pests, which benefits farmers and gardeners, and help control populations of mosquitoes, which benefits us all. And frogs and toads have some amazing songs, chirps, and calls to entertain us with. So let's spend some time learning about these charming and musical creatures with Leanne Lynham, who's a biologist and master naturalist, and who knows all things amphibian. But first, we'll learn a little about Leanne and her adventures. I sort of fell in love with the idea of working in wildlife and ecology very early in life and uh, went on to study wildlife biology at Texas A&M and then went to work for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. So I worked there for 30 years um, in wetlands conservation and then in our endangered species program and finally uh, working with some of our citizen science and outreach programs. I've heard this great story about you and Crocodile Dundee, who some people, I'm sure, remember from the 80s, or was it the yeah. 80s? Um, so uh, you were involved in protecting him, <laughs> and what were you protecting him from? Tell us that story. It well, I protected wonderful. him from crocodiles. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, in the 80s, I had the chance to uh, take a sabbatical from my work. I was working in southeast Texas, and in addition to doing some waterfowl and wetland work, I had also become the program leader for the alligator program in the state. Alligators having recently come off the endangered species list and we were working to make sure that we had a sustainable harvest program for them. And um, But I took a break from that because I got the chance to study in Australia for a year. And so it was the worst grades I ever made in my whole life because every time somebody said, let's go somewhere, or I heard about something interesting happening in somewhere else in Australia, I took off and went. And so one of the places I went was I left Melbourne in the very southern end of Australia and went up to the Northern Territories to Darwin. And I wanted to look up the people who were doing crocodile research there because I was doing alligator work in Texas. And um, I happened to meet those people and enjoyed talking with them. And, and then they said, well, by the way, we've been hired by the film, shoot, the film crew shooting Crocodile Dundee too to provide some safety guidance for them as they're shooting out in Kakadu National Park. Well, you see that year, it just so happened a, a few tourists and visitors to national parks had been eaten by saltwater crocodiles. And so those actors and actresses and film crews were a little bit nervous yeah. and wanted to make sure they did everything right. So it was the chance of a lifetime. I accompanied the group out there. Uh, basically, what we did was we set up sort of a barrier fence in the water of this billabong next to where they were shooting. And then we basically sat between Paul Hogan and the water so that, you know, if crocs got through, we'd be the first ones there. 
but it, it made for a great story when I came home to Texas. Yeah, and how did it go? I, I guess the crocodiles didn't get Yeah, through. the crocodiles <laughs> didn't show up that day, and <laughs> it was a great experience, though. Um, and then you've also worked overseas, so I guess you currently do in Zimbabwe and Africa. How, what is it you do there? Yes, we have a friend who developed a nonprofit um, called Noah's Farm that does some development work in central Zimbabwe. Um, he's working alongside some pastors there so that as they establish churches in really rural areas, uh, we are doing things like drilling water wells and investing in agricultural training. And I actually kind of head up our efforts to enhance educational opportunities. So just for example, this past year, we put some libraries in a box in some of those rural churches so that children have access to books outside of the school hours. Um, but of course, you know, traveling to Zimbabwe, then um, I immediately thought, well, where are the interesting birds and the interesting conservation work going on? And so I got connected with a fellow in with BirdLife Zimbabwe that was doing some conservation work for cranes in the eastern part of the country. And that being one of my big loves, I was just fascinated to find out more about how he was working with local villages to adopt conservation of wetlands. And and I went to these essentially Audubon Society meetings that were held in local villages, held out on the prairies, sitting there looking for cranes across these vast working landscapes. And so really inspirational. And in fact, this year I'm taking my first small group of friends on an ecotourism trip to visit some of those villages because they basically told me we are ready to teach people about our birds, so please bring them. So, um, so that's been a wonderful thing to to keep me busy and to to uh, just feel like I'm making some contributions in retirement. Is this time we get to spend in Zimbabwe? So, how did you become interested in? amphibians? Well, I've always loved wetlands. And so, yes, I did, you know, spend a large part of my um, youth there on the Texas coast in some wetland areas. And so uh, I was really excited for my first job at Texas Parks and Wildlife to be in those coastal wetlands. And then when I came to um, to Austin in our endangered species program and ultimately started working with trying to do conservation programs for species of concern, amphibians was something that came to mind. And because there was already concern about their decline worldwide, and it just became one of those groups that we realized we knew very little about at Texas Parks and Wildlife, and and it gave me great opportunities to get back out into those wet habitats. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Leanne Lynham, and she is a biologist and master naturalist, and we are talking about amphibians. And I understand that there are many different species that are uh, classified as amphibians. Can you uh, talk about that, what they are? Amphibians are one of the five main groups of vertebrates that we think about. So, you know, there's mammals and there's birds, there's reptiles, uh, there's actually three classes of fish, but then amphibians is the other class of vertebrates. And so that includes uh, basically this group of species that have the characteristics of having smooth skin and um, not covered with scales or with fur, being cold-blooded, that is that their internal body temperatures are affected by their external, by the external temperatures, and therefore their activities are limited by the external temperatures. And then the word amphibian in itself has the meaning of two lives. And so we often think about that as representing the fact that amphibians live both 
on water, usually in the larval form, and then usually they metamorphose and live on land. So often they have two different body forms and they often use those two different kinds of habitats. Um, and then within uh, that class of amphibia, there are three main subgroups. Uh, one of them, the scientific name is Aenura, which means no tail. So those are the frogs and the toads. Um, and then the next group is Caudata, which refers to caudal or tail. And so those are the salamanders, amphibians that do have tails. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is less known to us here in, in the United States, Gymnophonia are the Sicilians. And they're basically like an earthworm, but with a backbone. Um, they're an amphibian that is legless. Um, they Many of them spend most of their time underground or some of them are aquatic. Um, and so they're restricted to tropical regions. But those are the three main groups of amphibians. Let's take uh, frogs. Can you give us a sort of a birth to adulthood? Most adult uh, frog and toad species live on land, but they um, are found in areas where there is some semblance of moisture nearby. Even in the arid parts of Texas or the United States, we have frogs and toads, but they will spend much of their life burrowed under the ground. And some of them even have an ability, the spadefoot toads, for example, to secrete some substances, kind of like a cocoon that protects them underground, that provides some moisture during really dry periods. Um, and so then all of these species have certain triggers that when environmental conditions are right, they come back to freestanding water, and that's where they are going to reproduce. And so for the frogs and toads, um, the males call, um, and each species has a distinctive call, much like bird species have their own distinctive mm -hmm. calls. And so they will be on a night that is the right conditions, you know, where there's the right amount of humidity and perhaps there's been a recent rainfall, temperatures have to be right for that species, they will call and hopefully the females will come. And so then um, the, the fertilization is external. So the female, the male will grasp the female, but when she lays her eggs in the water, then he fertilizes them there in the water. And that's the general pattern for, for most of the frogs and toads. And then those eggs go through a development period and hatch out into the larvae, which we call tadpoles. So polywogs and tadpoles are two words that basically derive from root words that mean head tail, <laughs> because it's kind of an animal that looks like it's made up of a head and a tail. Right. And so those um, larval forms, the tadpoles, will live in the water. They have gills. They um, are often, they often may eat a different diet than the adults. They're often eating um, algae and plant materials, although some will capture small invertebrates. Um, and they go through a growth phase and changes start to happen. Um, that tail that they have starts to be resorbed. They start mm -hmm. to grow hind legs. They start to grow front legs inside of their body. They're starting to develop lungs. And so it's an amazing thing to think about that big change that goes through um, in their lives. But um, then they finally can reach a stage where they emerge from the water and that's that process of metamorphosis. Yeah, that's, it's pretty amazing the, the changes that yeah. they go through from, you know, I mean, to because they have to develop a way to breathe on land right. instead of underwater. Yeah. And, and amphibians, even once they reach that adult stage, they do have, uh, or frogs and toads, do have lungs that that they can get oxygen from. But even then, they still have these adaptations that are meant to be tied to aquatic environments because they not only can get oxygen through their lungs, but they also get 
oxygen through their mouth cavities and even through their skin. And so wow. the fact that they have this semi-permeable skin and um, they're trying to also bring in some of their gas exchange through their skin means that if they're in a wet environment, that's more efficient, or a moist environment, that's more efficient than if they are in a dry environment. So again, that connection to moisture. I've often been surprised because we have, uh, occasionally we'll find toads and, you know, I always wonder where did they come from because we don't really have a place where I can see that they could reproduce, but they'll, they do. They'll find places <laughs> to hang out throughout the year, often yeah. in flower pots is what people tell me yeah. about toads. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then when the, the breeding season is right, they'll move over land, you know, a half mile or so even to find some, and especially the toads will just need to find some temporary body of water. So if you get a heavy rain in the spring, they'll use a ditch or something like that yeah. to reproduce in. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Lee Ann Lynam, and she's a biologist and master naturalist, and we're talking about amphibians. Um, so are, are frogs and toads the same species, or are they different? That's got to be one of the most common questions <laughs> that everybody has about this group. So both of those terms are, of course, just sort of common terms referring to um, to these species of amphibians, the anurans. Um, and in reality, there are several families that we tend to call frogs and several families that we tend to call toads. Now, if we think about the really typical frogs, which would be the family named Ranidae, so those are things like bullfrogs and leopard frogs, the frogs with long hind legs that you always see around permanent water. So they're kind of the typical frog, and so we think of them as always being near permanent water, having those long legs for jumping and leaping, um, having a really smooth kind of skin. You know, sometimes it's spotted or has certain markings on it, but it's always usually a smooth skin. And they tend to um, always just lay their eggs sort of in clusters in the water. Um, on the other hand, what we call the true toad family is the family Buffonidae, and that's the toad you're probably referring to. The Gulf Coast toad is a really common one that people find around their homes in Texas. And so those are the hop toads. They have shorter hind legs, and we tend to say that they hop instead of leap. Um, and they can exist farther away from water because they will find little wet microclimates like burrowing under something or hiding in your flower pot or getting underneath a fallen log and, and find a little bit of moisture there. And then their skin tends to be that warty skin that we um, associate with toads. And so um, we give them the name toad and we give those other leopard frogs the name frogs. But if we look more broadly across the 40 or so species of frogs and toads that you could find in Texas, there are variations on the frogs and toads. And generally, we see that we use the common name toad a little more when it's a species that's more adapted to being able to handle a little more arid environment. And we tend to use the name frog for those species that are more associated with moisture environments. And yeah. so there's a lot of kinds of frogs and there's a lot of kinds of toads, but they're all anurans. In case you're wondering, that word is anuran, spelled A-N-U-R-A-N, and it refers to a tailless amphibian of the order Anura, which includes frogs and toads. 
You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and today we're on a quest to learn about amphibians, frogs, toads, and let's not forget salamanders. My guest, Leanne Lynham, is a biologist and master naturalist who has spent years working to conserve precious wetlands and to protect the creatures who live there, including endangered species. Our mission at Mothering Earth is to bring you stories of people like Lynham, whose work helps create a more sustainable world. Back to our interview now, I asked Leanne what amphibians eat. Frogs and toads as adults are nearly always um, insectivorous, and so feeding on things like um, flies or other types of insects that would be found in your garden or even pests of the garden. And so they do play an important role for us in terms of being a part of the food chain, both in terms of eating a lot of insects and then also in terms of being prey for other um, species. And so frogs and toads have their place, of course, just being part of the food chain. Um, in some environments, we it's been estimated that the cricket frogs in one pond can consume up to five million arthropods, you know, meaning insects and spiders and things, a year. So they're pretty important to us in terms of the role that they play in the environment there. things like that. Yes, yeah. yeah. So all kinds of things that we would prefer to have a little under control. (laughs) Right. Why should we care to protect amphibians? Well, we've already spoken of their role in the environment. Um, We've also um, really looked at Uh, or use them to our benefit in a lot of other settings. Uh, Frogs and toads are used a lot in medical research. The African clawed frog was originally one of the animals that was used for pregnancy tests and and, in testing many types of um, drugs and medical compounds. Um, They've been known to be a source of particular chemical compounds. for example, toads secrete something called bufotoxin. We already said that their their family name was bufonidae. And so these are strong chemicals that they'll secrete from those warts in their skin. And it's used to protect them from predators. So right. if you've ever watched a dog catch a toad thinking that they've found something they're going to eat, you'll often see them spit them out and foam at the mouth. And that's because they have these nasty tasting bufotoxins there. Well... Scientists, especially cancer researchers, are always looking for those kinds of alkaloid compounds that might have some medical application. So in fact, toads have been researched for the presence of compounds that might be useful in treating some types of cancer. And so those are, you know, just some of the various ways in which they benefit us directly as humans um, besides um, their role they're playing in the environment. And then finally, I like to say it's important to think of protecting amphibians because they're really bioindicators for us. So meaning a species that tells us something that's going on in the bigger part of the environment. And so um, think about that permeable skin and the fact that different compounds can pass through it. So when we see amphibians exhibiting characteristics such as um, the occurrence of frogs and toads that um, fail to properly develop different you know, sexual characteristics because of exposure to different kinds of pesticides, then we're thinking, well, maybe that's an indication for us that, you know, these compounds are something that we should be taking a closer look at for ourselves. So, you know, like the proverbial 
a canary in the coal mine, we think of amphibians as being somewhat sensitive because of the habitats they inhabit and that, that type of skin that they have. And so therefore, it's just good to keep an eye on them. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Leanne Lynham. Uh, she's a biologist and master naturalist, and we're talking about amphibians. Um, are there any specific creatures you know of that we should be concerned about? We've, took, we've also talked a lot about frogs and toads, but what about salamanders? <laughs> yeah, just turning back to salamanders a, a moment, you know, we described the typical life cycle for frogs and toads. Um, salamanders sometimes are a little bit different than that. Um, there are some salamanders who have, they all have aqua, aquatic larvae, um, but some of them don't go through that metamorphosis process and emerge onto the land. And, but here in central Texas, we have some pretty important indicators, um, and those are the spring-dwelling salamanders that we have here. Um, we call them neotenic, meaning that they retain the characteristics of being a young salamander. So they have the external gills and they remain aquatic throughout their life because they're dwelling in these spring habitats that provide a really consistent kind of environment. And so they're good indicators to us of the water quality there and of the presence of oxygen and adequate spring flow. But you know, in general, um, there has been concern about amphibians for nearly 30 years now. And uh, just as I said, they were kind of these canaries in the coal mine. We began to go, what in the world is going on? In the 1990s, it was scientists at a, um, just an international herpetological conference who happened to be, and the story I heard from some herpetologists was, well, we'd all gone out to the pub after the meetings were over and people were starting to talk about their research sites and they were saying, that, you know, my population has really been in decline and I don't know what's going on in, in this frog population. I, I can't put my finger on it. And others were saying, me too, me too. And so all at once there was a recognition that across the globe there were a number of populations of amphibians that were in decline. And so there were, was some understanding of, well, you know, in some cases we know that habitat has been lost. In other cases there were circumstances where invasive species had been introduced into the environment and sometimes those are things that we did on purpose such as like putting trout species into an environment where they hadn't occurred before or bullfrogs actually proved to be a threat to some amphibian populations in the west because they're voracious predators and they were introduced and they started to wipe out the native frogs but in other cases there were circumstances where we didn't really know what the driving cause was. And in, in other places, there were reports of amphibians with really high levels of malformations, like extra legs and extra eyes or missing legs or extra webbing. And so it just really began to look creepy, what's going on with all of our amphibians. And so it, it led to the recognition that we needed a much better system of monitoring what was going on to amphibians worldwide. And we started some programs for that. And, and in the process of studying these populations, a few new threats emerged. Um, one was that perhaps in some areas, amphibians might be a little bit more vulnerable to things such as um, increased UV radiation because some populations at higher altitudes uh, were declining. 
Um, in other cases, we we recognize that perhaps shifts in climate were the, the culprit. And so it's thought that the golden toad in Costa Rica disappeared simply because the rains did not come for several years in a row. And, and so that's one species that we tend to associate its extinction with climate change. Um, but the, the biggest culprit that was emerging was this fungus that had not been previously seen in many populations. It was called chytrid fungus, and it infects the skin of the amphibians and sort of cuts off that ability of them to exchange gases and kind of hardens the skin and, and causes the amphibian to die in that way. And this is a, a fungus that wasn't native to the Americas or to Australia and the South Pacific. We think that perhaps it emerged out of Asia. And, but when it reached these other continents, the species had no protection against it. And probably it came in with importation of, you know, species, you know, what, how many pathogens have come in. And so it just really created a devastating um, cycle of amphibian populations plummeting. So it's thought that in the past 30 years, it's estimated that we've lost 200 species of amphibians. And that's incredibly high yeah. compared to other species groups and, of course, to, to any time in the past. And probably about half of those were lost to this chytrid fungus. And so now we're really actively engaged in ways of trying to prevent it from decimating new populations where it appears. There's actually a program called the Amphibian Survival Alliance, or most people are calling it the Amphibian Ark, where zoos are collecting um, frog species in areas where the chytrid fungus is starting to show up and trying to keep that species alive in captivity until they can, you know, ensure that perhaps there's some immunity that's developed or some species that are or individuals that are resistant that can help hold the population against it. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Leanne Lynam, and she's a biologist and master naturalist, and we're talking about amphibians and threats to them. Um, if you could ask the average person uh, something that they could do to help protect uh, populations of amphibians, what would you say? One of the things that everybody can do is to be thinking of the ecosystem when you decide how you're going to use the land on your own property. And so things such as pesticides and fertilizers that can run off and affect wetland habitats um, should be used sparingly and very carefully and ensure that they don't run off. I mentioned that we were seeing amphibians um, a number of years ago that had high levels of malformations. And, you know, that was really a scary prospect of what kind of toxin is in the environment that's making this happen. Well, it turned out it wasn't a toxin. Instead, it was a parasite that was infecting the amphibians. But interestingly, the parasite was a parasite, a trematode, that was also carried by snails. And so when you had fertilizer runoff into a pond and you had algae increase, then you had snail populations increase, then you had greater uh, infestation of the amphibians and you had these really weird malformations. So it's an ecosystem, yes. <laughs> you know, we have to yes. think in terms of how do we affect the whole environment. And so of course, and then creating habitat in your on your property is always a great idea, creating water sources, having native plants available there, um, and leaving space in wild areas for creatures like that. And um, 
Beyond doing things on your own property, there are chances for people to volunteer. There are amphibian monitoring programs going on, and so you can find out through programs such as Frog Watch USA how to adopt an area and monitor the frogs there, see if you have any population declines going on in your area. And then finally, for pe- even for people who don't have natural habitats and who aren't inclined to get out, you know, we can just be more conscientious about certain things. For example, not using plastic. And plastic destroys habitat from the production of the petrochemicals that's used to make it. And then we know that it ends up as trash in the environment and that it breaks down and ends up in our soils and our waters. And so the average person in this world could do something for amphibians just by saying, I'm going to try to not use plastic. By the way, what is your favorite amphibian? Mine is the toad. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the program and perhaps will be inspired to go out and count frogs or toads. Mothering Earth is also a podcast and is available on your favorite podcast platform so that you can listen anytime. Mothering Earth is on Instagram at mothering underscore earth and on Facebook at mothering earth pod. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. The views and opinions expressed on Mothering Earth do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of this station.